Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing the seven group winners competing for best in show at the one. We see these beautiful pictures at night from the decks of these two U.S. Navy vessels in the Eastern Mediterranean. I am tempted to quote the great Leonard Cohen. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. Um, and they are beautiful pictures of, uh, of fearsome armaments making what is for them a brief flight over this airfield. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. You guys love the tomahawk, don't you? We all love the tomahawk. Oh, that's it's a great, great weapon, and it's cheap. Tomahawk missile, we all love it. Good day for the tomahawk missile. I'm so excited, and I just can't hide it. I'm about to lose control, and I think I like it. I'm so excited, and I just can't hide it. And I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I want to. They're 18 feet long, 1,000 pounds of ammunition, 2 feet wide. We love the Tomahawk. They're a precise weapon, terrific weapon. Plus, it's really easy to drive around. They push a button, boom. And it makes us proud, finally. Brilliant strike. It was remarkable. A restoration of American moral clarity. America is back. The Ronald Reagan-like muscle. This is just classic, classic showmanship. It's not even brinkmanship. Yeah, I love it. A very strong move, very presidential. Am I nuts? Or does he, something's wrong with his feet. I don't think I ever find myself saying this on this, but you, I think, I yeah. think you're right. Yeah, right? he's got two left feet. That is certainly a first. Go uh, get him, pal. Man. This is Intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 12 of Intercepted. Tonight I ordered a targeted military strike on the airfield in Syria from where the chemical attack was launched. There's almost nothing that brings the warmongers, the hawks, the elites from both the Democratic and Republican parties together more than a cruise missile strike. Over the past week, we've seen the phenomenal transformation of Democratic Party heavyweights who just days ago were screaming from the mountaintops about the Trump administration effectively being a sleeper cell for Vladimir Putin and the Russians. We've seen them now transform into, at least on this issue, lemmings heaping praise on Trump for his decision to rain cruise missiles down on a Syrian military base that, by the way, was back in operation almost immediately after the strikes ended. 
Now, that strike, uh, of course, was ordered by Donald Trump, supposedly in response to the uh, chemical weapon attack in Idlib province that the U.S. is saying definitively Bashar al-Assad's forces conducted. There are reports that suggest that somewhere between 30 or 80 plus people uh, were killed in that attack. And the the pictures uh, are horrifying. Now, it, it may very well be the case that as the U.S. says, so it is. It's completely plausible that this was a chemical weapons attack. I personally believe Bashar al-Assad is a butcher and a war criminal. I wouldn't put it past him to order a chemical weapons strike. I wouldn't. But as we've seen time and again throughout the history of U.S. wars, the public is often not presented with evidence, not to mention solid evidence that what those in power, the administration, other powerful individuals, that what they're alleging is actually true or that it's the full truth. As journalists, our job is to hold those in power accountable, whether they're Democrats, Republicans, or some other iteration. And part of that means demanding evidence, particularly when it means war or military strikes, when people are going to die, not just U.S. soldiers, but also innocent people on the other end of our missiles and our bombs and our guns. Everyone knows the old adage, trust but verify. For journalists, that shouldn't be the policy. It should be distrust and verify. The great I.F. Stone put it best, all governments lie. And they lie to justify wars and aggression. 1846, Mexico invaded the U.S. Lie. 1898, Spain blew up the USS Maine in the Havana Harbor of Cuba. Lie. The U.S. opposed fascism in Europe leading up to World War II. Lie. 1964, U.S. warships attacked in the Gulf of Tonkin during Vietnam. Lie. 1990, Iraqi soldiers were ripping Kuwaiti babies from incubators and throwing them on the floor to die. Lie. WMDs in Iraq. Lie. Iraq worked with Al-Qaeda. Lie. We don't collect any personal data on Americans, on millions of Americans. Lie. And you know what? Many of these lies took lives, lots of lives, millions of lives. And now the Trump administration is pulling out a classic in American war selling. Compare enemy X to Hitler. It doesn't matter if the new Hitler used to be our ally. Enemy X is now Hitler. Panamanian dictator and CIA narco trafficker Manuel Noriega, when he outlived U.S. interests, he was just like Hitler. Saddam Hussein, after he fell out of favor with the United States and no longer was a worthy ally to kill Iranians, oh, he was Hitler. Slobodan Milosevic, who had all sorts of deals with the Clinton administration before the disintegration of Yugoslavia began, oh, he has to be Hitler too. White House spokesperson Sean Spicer, he took it to another level though. We didn't use chemical weapons in World War II. You know, someone as despicable as Hitler, who didn't even sink to the to using chemical weapons. Hitler didn't even sink to the level of using chemical weapons. What did you mean by that? I think when you come to sarin gas, uh, there was no, he was not using the gas on his own people the same way that a shot is doing. I mean, there was clearly, I, I, I understand your point, thank you. I'm just going to leave Sean Spicer's insane, ahistoric comments right there, right where they are, and let them speak for themselves. Throughout history, Those who have demanded evidence to support these assertions that lead to wars, they've been harassed, 
scorned, vilified, crucified in the news media and by the powerful elites of both political parties. Some have been accused of being traitors or siding with the enemy. And so many people, so many of the people who have a PhD in being wrong all the time, they're praising Trump right now for his cruise missile strike on Syria. Hillary Clinton, who supported the Iraq war, who promoted the idea that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, Hillary Clinton and almost every prominent congressional Democrat. Making sure that Assad knows when he commits such despicable atrocities, he will pay a price, is the right thing to do. Leaders of liberal think tanks. In this case, I think that uh, this was the right thing. I think uh, Donald Trump became president of the United States. I think this was actually a big moment. So I would be doing everything I could on every front to increase our leverage. Because in the Middle East, if you're trying to do diplomacy without leverage, you're, you're playing baseball without a bat. Have joined along with famed neocons like William Crystal and hawks like John McCain and Lindsey Graham. It's the beginning of a departure from the failed policies of the last eight years. The only constitutional requirement that exists regarding war is for Congress to put the nation in a declared state of war. And they're all back together again, cheering this war on. Now, given this history, shouldn't we seek out dissenting voices and listen to what they have to say while the decisions are being made, while history is unfolding in front of us? Dissidents are often right. Not always, but dissidents often turn out to be right. The only member of Congress that is questioning the official narrative about the Syria chemical weapons attack is Hawaii Congresswoman and combat veteran Tulsi Gabbard. We as the American people should be concerned when any president of the United States launches an illegal and unconstitutional military strike against a foreign government. Uh, this is something that Congress has not authorized, and it's an escalation of a counterproductive regime change war in Syria that our country's been waging for years. First, for many years, through the CIA covertly, and now overtly through President Trump's reckless military strike. A few months ago, Tulsi Gabbard visited Syria, and she met with Bashar al-Assad in Damascus. And boy, did the knives come out for Tulsi Gabbard ever since, including those from her own party, and it just intensified when she spoke out against Donald Trump's cruise missile attack. Howard, how do you respond to Tulsi Gabbard? I think it's outrageous. Uh, there's a long, well-known history, both in our intelligence committee, Amnesty International, Doctors Without Borders. Every single one of these agencies has said that Assad is using chemical weapons. He's a barbarian. He's murdered a half a million of his own people. I can't imagine how you could make a statement like that, especially being on the Foreign Relations Committee. I can't imagine what could possibly have been going through her head. So you said that Gabbard should not be in Congress, that this is a disgrace. All she's asking for is proof, though. Is, is that a if, you, if you're on the Foreign Relations Committee and you haven't seen the proof in the last five and a half years that Assad is a butcher and used chemical weapons, there's something the matter with you. Now, I'm sure I'm going to get attacked for this. And frankly, I don't care. But I believe that especially right now, we need to act upon the principle that we need to see evidence, that we need to question deeply decisions that lead to war or military action, especially given the fact that we have an expanding number of U.S. wars being waged both covert and overt around the globe today. So we're going to focus our entire show today on Syria. And we're going to hear 
conflicting perspectives. We're going to hear very different points of view on what happened in Syria and what should happen in Syria. And some of these views get almost no airplay in the corporate media. We begin the show with a politician whose entire career has embodied the necessity of dissent. Former Ohio Congressman Dennis Kucinich, he voted against the Patriot Act. He opposed the 1999 Kosovo bombing uh, by Bill Clinton. He opposed the Iraq War, the drone wars. He's one of the few members of Congress who's voted against uh, congressional resolutions uh, supporting Israel. He opposed the Obama administration's war in Libya, and he has consistently opposed support for U.S. client states around the world. Uh, Dennis served eight terms in the U.S. Congress, and he ultimately lost his seat after a redistricting. Dennis Kucinich has run twice for the Democratic nomination uh, for president of the United States, and lately he's been in the news because of this. Back in 2013, Kucinich met with Bashar al-Assad in Damascus, and he interviewed Assad. And Kucinich, during that interview, pressed Assad exactly on this issue, on his commitment to give up chemical weapons. Can you tell us now, do you have chemical weapons or don't you? Well, when we uh, joined the the treaty last week, it means that we have, and we said said that. So it's not a secret anymore. So so as far as the American people, you, you, you will... Uh, agree that you do have a stockpile of chemical weapons. Well, that's why we joined the international agreement. So you would say uh, that President Obama then can trust you to follow through? Uh, I don't think that President Obama should trust me first. The Syrian people should trust me, not President Obama. Well, a few months ago, Kucinich accompanied Tulsi Gabbard on her visit to Syria. And once again, they met Bashar al-Assad. Dennis Kucinich joins me now. Dennis, welcome to Intercepted. Thank you very much. Uh, Great to join you, Jeremy. Do you believe that this was a chemical weapons attack by Assad's air force or military on April 4th? No. And here's why. Because Syria had been winning on the ground. They had a major battle that was a turnaround um, moment in Aleppo. And it would go against everything that makes sense militarily and politically to engage in a chemical weapons attack. Do you believe that that Assad has ever used chemical weapons during his time as uh, president of Syria? I don't believe so, but I have to tell you, you know, it's up for debate. So my concern is this. The uh, rush to judgment and the absolute refusal to to ask for an independent inquiry, to uh, promote an independent investigation, to demand access to the forensics of it, raises questions about whether there was an agenda and whether or not this was, in fact, a false flag attack. And if it was a false flag attack, what would the agenda be and who is most likely to have conducted it? I don't know that there was, but I certainly have to tell you that based on uh, all the circumstances, uh, you can't rule it out. I mean, the gas attack was horrible, terrible, horrific. And and America, uh, you know, American people have a big heart. You've got elements that are aware of of the sensitivities of the American people, and if they can try to prey on that and suck our country into a uh, a broader participation in a war, they'll do it. So I think that um, you know you, you have to go back to 2013. That gas attack was used to try to draw the UK into bombing Syria. Their parliament said no. 
we have to look at timing. In 2013, there were weapons inspectors in in the vicinity, which would make a gas attack by the government crazy. And uh, this time, 2017, Syria had ISIS on the back foot. Talks have been uh, proceeding to try to end the war. It just makes no sense at all. And if something doesn't make military sense or political sense, you just have to ask, you know, is there some other process going on that is intended to develop a, a wag-the-dog scenario that draws countries in based on an emotional response to what appears to be a, uh, a horrific attack. Now, you, you're no stranger to uh, standing alone in the Congress in opposition to otherwise popular militaristic policies. But on, on this issue of the chemical weapons, the entire political establishment seems to be uh, quickly it seems to have quickly reached a consensus that this is a fact that chemical weapons were used and you have a number of organizations Bellingcat and others that analyze the reporting of Cy Hirsch and the MIT analysis that you're citing and they say that's just a uh, fallacious science and it it doesn't hold up what do you say both to the political supporters of this strike who are asserting that Assad did use chemical weapons and also to the people who say, well, we've got a, you know, our own scientists that are saying that that's just gibberish, that whether it's Cy Hirsch or you or Reese Ehrlich, that you guys are basically just cherry picking people who are going to be critical of the dominant narrative. If the response to the assumption of a chemical weapon attack is a military strike, then certainly there's a, it, it brings in a higher level of responsibility on the part of America to demand uh, an independent inquiry, to ask for the forensics, to ask for access to the site, to take uh, samples of fragments, to take tissue samples, to interview uh, witnesses, to interview victims. I, I mean, all these things should have been done. And the fact that there was a rush to judgment and they weren't done does raise serious questions. If you believe in the rule of law, uh, then uh, civilized nations, as President Trump uh, liked to refer to, do not proceed in a response by uh, violating international law uh, with a military strike. We had an obligation to go in and get the details. And then once that happens, you take that information to the UN Security Council and, if necessary, to The Hague to uh, begin prosecution. But none of that was done. And I'll tell you what it reminds me of, Jeremy. You know, yes, I mean, I'm probably one of the few people out there, as well as Tulsi Gabbard, saying, look, slow down. We don't know for sure. And when the entire Washington establishment is lined going in the other direction, kind of reminds me of Iraq. And I did a report in 2002 that looked at all the available intelligence and uh, everything that was on the record and a few things that weren't. And there was no proof that Iraq had anything to do with 9-11. Al-Qaeda's role in 9-11. Iraq didn't have the intention or capability of attacking the United States and didn't have weapons of mass destruction, as it uh, well turned out. The moment has the same feeling. And it has a similar feeling to Libya, where, you know, Gaddafi was going to slaughter people. And that was just uh, a pretext for being able to go after Libya. And what we're really looking here are pretexts, pretexts for running an agenda of regime change. And the thing that I think is the, is the most ironic about all this, Saudi Arabia sits with President Trump and approves of his missile strike. Well, hello, Saudi Arabia, as well as Qatar and Turkey uh, the U.S. back channel and uh, the U.K. have been helping to fund these so-called moderate groups who end up uh, being uh, 
cousins to ISIS, al-Qaeda, and al-Nusra, and they're trying to take over the government of Syria, which, like it or not, is a pluralistic society where people can worship freely. But there's some obvious uh, incongruities here that do not argue for further military intervention uh, in any case, and certainly argue for a patient, calm, and deep and detailed investigation. What What is it that, you know about someone like Tulsi Gabbard or yourself that you're immediately assumed to be a nut and all the people who've been so wrong for so long are welcomed on the airwaves of the most prestigious uh, cable news networks and, and written about and write op-eds in the prestigious journals of our nation? I'm, of course, very familiar with the scenario that you're speaking of because as the person who led the effort against the U.S. march to war in both uh, Iraq and Libya, you know, I understand how uh, one becomes marginalized by challenges status quo. I ran for president and was treated as a um, second-rate candidate because I opposed the war. And yet everyone who was on the stage with me had favored it, and they were wrong. <laughs> you, you have to uh, ask the question then, uh, what is America all about? Are, are we uh, simply about imperium? Are we about expanding the reach of uh, what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex. When you consider we have 800 bases in, in over 130 countries that we spend more than 10 times what Russia spends annually on uh, the military, that we have a, a substantial part of the American resources go for war, this machine is a juggernaut that demands to continue to be fed. And anyone who gets in the way, they try to run over so, you know, when I was a kid growing up in Cleveland, I used to go to big Cleveland Indians baseball games, and there was a guy who would walk up and down the, the steps in the bleachers and go, scorecard, scorecard, you can't tell the players without a scorecard. You know, in Washington, D.C., you need a scorecard, which includes who are the defense uh, contractors who benefit from this, who's promoting this in the, in the Pentagon, who's promoting it in the State Department, who's promoting it at the CIA. And once you have that, uh, you kind of can figure out where this thing is going. And, uh, you know, what about the genesis of war? If the American people really understood, if they really understood that our country has tilted in favor of ISIS and al-Qaeda to knock out a government that's pluralistic, that our country is in aligned with Saudi Arabia, which has funded Wahhabis and is part of this... Uh, Axis of Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the U.S., and the U.K., who overtly or covertly has been opening the door for these uh, radical uh, Islamic jihadist interests, I think the American people would be in full revolt. But they're shown pictures of children who have been gassed. And so, you know, there's an emotional response, and everybody closes ranks based on, on that. We've, we've talked to reporters who are on the ground there, including... Uh, some that I've known for many, many years, and they are certainly not pro-war or imperialist. And they have a little bit of a different take, particularly since Trump took office, that the United States and Russia were increasingly cooperating or at least conducting operations that would assist the Syrian government forces in reclaiming territory. Are you saying that you, you don't believe that that's accurate? No, I, I'm, look, it very well could be a double game. Let me, let me give you an example. 
I mean, we could be doing one thing overtly and another thing covertly. I mean, that's not unusual. Uh, the Let's go back to October of 2013, where President Obama sent uh, Secretary Kerry to meet with uh, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov to come to an agreement to end the fighting in Syria. The news accounts prominently featured unnamed sources from the Pentagon and the Central Intelligence Agency who opposed any agreement with Russia. The CIA did not want to share intelligence, which was one of the uh, things that was agreed to do with Russia, and the Pentagon did not want to share any military intelligence, uh, which was another one of the um, uh, covenants of the agreement. So uh, there was an agreement, uh, but less than a week later, there was a bombing attack on a Syrian army barracks that killed about 100 Syrian soldiers. That ended the agreement. Now, let's, uh, let's focus attention just for a few seconds on, on what happened here. That uh, the Pentagon and the CIA basically overruled the President of the United States and the Secretary of State and decided that they were not going to tolerate any kind of, a, of an agreement with Russia. And uh, you've got to look at the uh, deep state potential here. And at the same time, there's this narrative going forward about Russia stealing the U.S. election, which uh, uh, some of my Democratic friends vying for uh, uh, the remake of, uh, of a movie about Joe McCarthy are auditioning for uh, a role as acolytes. We are in a quandary with Russia where we ask them to participate. We bomb uh, a barracks uh, in, in a country that they have been invited in to protect. And then uh, we blame them for stealing the presidential election. Uh, this is a calculated effort to drive a wedge between the United States and Russia so that the permanent war machine just keeps going on and on and on. And if you have peace, they don't make any money. There's no money in peace. So they just will precipitate, manipulate, uh, and uh, you've got a new president who's not experienced. Uh, I would imagine that he's really at the mercy of these uh, forces who, who are at work in, uh, in the national security structure. Well, I mean, we don't even need to go down anything even vaguely uh, smelling of a conspiracy to just state quite clearly what we know to be true, which is that Trump has said that he's going to defer far down the line to the generals. And, you know, the guy spends a tremendous amount of time golfing. He doesn't seem to be interested in reading his presidential daily briefings. And I mean, my, my fundamental concern is that when you got a guy like General Mattis, who's very hawkish on Iran, you've got the mixture of arrogance and fawning over the military uh, in the Oval Office, and you have major world players like the United States and Russia and secondary players like Iran all in the same battlefield, that we could be looking at sort of unthinkable war scenarios here, or you know the, the prospect of something resembling a a, a war between the United States and potentially Russia, if not Russia and Iran. Well, that's my concern right now. Uh, when you have the Russian president, Med Medvedev, warning that the U.S. and Russia could be heading into combat, people ought to take notice. The last time I heard words like that was years ago when uh, the leader of one of the major parties in Russia said that if we blockaded the port of Montenegro, it would be a path, direct path towards nuclear escalation. Uh, now we're in Syria. We've done military strikes. Our Navy is uh, sending uh, those missiles. We are forcing Russia's hand. 
any miscalculation, any mistake uh, in the air, on the ground, could precipitate a wider conflict. Uh, we're playing in the flash of World War III here. These people who are making decisions for America at this moment do not have the kind of diplomatic experience which is required to be able to handle a major crisis with another country, with another power. Uh, there is no military solution in Syria, and there certainly is no military solution, any differences between the United States and Russia and the United States and Iran. I believe that Bashar al-Assad is a butcher and a war criminal, and I want him held accountable. As a journalist from the United States, I've always viewed my primary job as holding the government of my own country accountable for what it does around the world. And that's been my position on U.S. involvement in Syria from the beginning. But isn't Assad also a butcher who has mercilessly killed civilians? Well, they're in a war. So the answer to that question is uh, yes. But on the other hand, you have to ask uh, if this is all about regime change, what follows? Uh, and you have to go into the circumstances under which he is at war. Because if he's wrong, so is Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Turkey, so is the United States and the UK, whether it's covert or overt action, in stirring up a war and opening up a war for people from 90 different countries. Now, how someone defends his country against an attack from 90 different countries nations, people from 90 different nations who are essentially jihadists. How's he to do that? Is there a, a nice, neat way to do that? I don't think so. And I'm not making excuses for anybody. Now, anyone who is defending their country against the kind of onslaught that Syria's experience is perforce going to be seen as a brutal dictator. On the other hand, what's his choice? Does he concede his country to al-Qaeda, al-Nusra, and ISIS, and the uh, world powers who are using uh, Syria as a proxy place for a conflict with uh, Iran uh, and Russia. So I, the, the focus now, the, the demonization. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. ...of Assad is part and parcel of an effort to push regime change. It's not about creating peace in Syria. You know, the, this idea of regime change always ends up being uh, a game of ulterior motives that results in the country uh, that is targeted, uh, people living there are the losers. I, I'm well aware that there are people who are outside of Syria right now who 
feel very strongly about removing Assad. Uh, but, you know, that that's not our job. And you, they have to be aware, and they may not be, that this war was accelerated with from outside and people who had an agenda. And there are radical Islamic jihadis who are being financed by Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Qatar, uh, Saudi Arabia being uh, one country that was uh, uh, linked to 9-11, al-Qaeda linked to 9-11, and we're holding hands with them walking towards Damascus. I don't think so. You know about dirty wars. This is a dirty war. But one thing for sure, the, the Syrian people are not the winners in this at, at any point. And if there is an attempt at regime change, they will be the losers. And I oppose it wholeheartedly, and I think that uh, inevitably the people in Syria are going to have to make a decision about who they want to run their country. And at this point, uh, the people I talk to or oppose the side do not want to put their country in the hands of al-Qaeda or ISIS. And that's exactly what they're looking at, and they know it, and they know their, their life, which they're desperate to try to hold on to, uh, would be immeasurably worse. And for the people who are outside the country who don't like Assad, you know, I can understand that, but I, I am not going to endorse the wholesale slaughter of a country which is going on uh, with all kinds of covert and overt action on the part of big powers who really don't have any business at all and any legitimate ethical moral business at all in Syria. All right, Dennis Kucinich, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for being with us on Intercepted. Thank you. Dennis Kucinich is a former U.S. representative who served eight terms in Congress, and he was twice a candidate for president of the United States. Russian President Vladimir Putin has now spoken publicly about the chemical weapons attack. During a meeting with the Italian leader in Moscow, Putin charged that this is a false flag operation. We have intelligence showing that such provocations may happen in other parts of Syria as well, including territories south of Damascus. They plan to use some substances and then accuse the Syrian government of using uh, those uh, chemicals. Those are the words of Vladimir Putin. Now, as I said, I would not be shocked if the truth is that this was a merciless use of chemical weapons on April 4th in Syria by Bashar al-Assad's forces. But if that is true, it then begs the question, why would Assad use chemical weapons? In many ways, conventional munitions can kill more people and faster. I went back and I read the writings of one of the past century's early supporters of the use of chemical weapons, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Writing of his support for the use of chemical weapons in India and what is now Iraq, then it was Mesopotamia, Winston Churchill wrote in 1919, quote, I am strongly in favor of using poison gas against uncivilized tribes. The moral effect should be so good that the loss of life should be reduced to a minimum. It is not necessary to use only the most deadly gases. Gases can be used which cause great inconvenience and would spread a lively terror and yet would leave no serious permanent effects on most of those affected. Those are the words of Winston Churchill. I have personally reviewed the intelligence and there is no doubt the Syrian regime is responsible for the decision to attack and for the attack itself. So if what we're told is true, 
that Assad did in fact order this attack, what would his motive be for doing so? I'm joined now by my colleague, Murtaza Hussein. He's been covering the war in Syria for several years. Maz, welcome back to Intercepted. Thanks for having me. How would it benefit Bashar al-Assad to use chemical weapons? We we don't know exactly how many people were killed, but there's estimates between 30 and, and more than 80 people killed. He could have killed in a far more efficient way with dumb bombs or basic strafing of uh, of the areas in Idlib that were hit? Well, there are a number of possible uh, gains you could get from this action. First of all, there's a strategic perspective. There is a rapprochement which is happening between the United States and Russia over Syria, especially since Trump came into office. Now, from Assad's perspective, it's not necessarily in his benefit that Russia and the U.S. should come to terms with each other in this way because it's very likely or very possible that Russia and the U.S. could come to a solution in Syria which excludes him. Now, Russia, unlike Iran, has always had some communications and relations with the Syrian opposition. He, and he knows this, is an embarrassing proxy for Russia. He has a very tarnished reputation because of the events of the last few years. By taking this action, he has driven a wedge between the U.S. and Russia. So whereas before there was a risk soaring to emerge where he may be excluded in a political solution which is developed by Russian and American leaders, now very firmly Russia is back in his camp in hostility to the U.S. So in a sense, he is in a much more favorable political position today than he was a week ago, despite the threats of an issue to him against by the United States. And now secondly, there's also a very you know, hard strategic reality behind the use of chemical weapons, which is that he has to regain control of a province of Idlib of 2 million people. His army is in a shambolic state uh, after six, five years of conflict. And he is now has the ability to use chemical weapons as a force multiplier to send a message to people in Idlib that we may not have the strength to take back the province in the normal military fashion, but we can use Uh, very heinous weapons to demoralize and terrorize people. And now, based on statements by the Trump administration in the past few weeks, he may have thought he had the green light to do that. And uh, it would have sent a very stark message if he had, and there hadn't been any response. But even with the U.S. response, his position has still improved in many ways. The Obama administration, though, made this deal with the Russians and with Syria back in 2013 that Assad was going to allow all of the chemical weapons to be removed from the country. My preference was always to resolve the issue diplomatically. And it turns out, lo and behold, that Syria now is actually removing its chemical weapons that a few months ago it denied it even possessed and has provided a comprehensive list and they have already uh, begun taking these weapons out of Syria. And although that does not solve the tragic situation inside of Syria, It turns out that removing those chemical weapons will make us safer and it will make Israel safer and it will make the Syrian people safer and it will make the region safer. Are you saying that didn't happen and that Assad still maintains a substantial arsenal of chemical weapons? It's very difficult to make the determination right now. I think that the fact that a chemical attack may have happened on the regime's watch is reason to question whether that deal was implemented and implemented as fully as the Obama administration claimed. Uh, But I also think that after so many years of conflict, it's very possible that the logistics of the Syrian army could be in disarray. We saw the same thing with the Iraqis uh, after several years of conflict. They 
had misplaced chemical weapons stockpiles, some of which were found after the U.S. invasion, which is not to say that the WMD claims were true, just that they were such a messy uh, logistical situation that, you know, weapons could exist where it thought they'd been taken out of. Is it possible that there are various entities of the Syrian state that are freelancing, essentially, that, you know, Assad is... I mean, is is Assad fully in control of everything that the Syrian armed forces do? Or is it possible that there are different factions, maybe sometimes striking at the same enemies or of different mindsets on how the uh, so-called enemy should be struck? There's been a warlordization of the country in many senses, both on the opposition side, but also on the government side as well, too. After the regimes first began to grapple with the reality of a very well-funded or very vigorous armed opposition, it began to decentralize many of its functions. It helped train popular militias throughout the country to fight back. And many of these militias now have uh, created their own, you know, fiefdoms of influence. This is not to say that nothing that happens in the country is ordered by the government. Certainly, especially after Damascus, a lot is. But it's not outside the realm of possibility at all that Local commanders uh, could order attacks or engage in atrocities, which were never green-lighted by the government itself. They're the consequence of a state which has been forcibly decentralized by so many years of stress and conflict. Mm -hmm. Murtaza Hussein, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Murtaza Hussein is a reporter at The Intercept. Coming up on the show, we're going to hear from a Canadian citizen who's originally from Syria. He was kidnapped by U.S. operatives at JFK Airport in 2002, and he was sent to Syria, where he was tortured by Assad's intelligence service. This is Intercepted. Stay with us. Now, most of the voices that we hear in U.S. news coverage of Syria are not Syrians. They are retired generals, political strategists, so-called terrorism experts, politicians, media personalities. There are great reporters that are covering this from the ground, including for corporate media networks. Um, But it, it is, you know, when we're talking about the generals and the politicians and Trump and the Democrats, it's easy to advocate for a war when you have no personal stakes in it or when it makes you look tough as a politician. Or military strikes can be really convenient if you want to distract from scandals or controversies. Back in 2002, when George W. Bush was selling the case for the war in Iraq to the American people, he singled out Syria as a particularly evil country. And that's a key part of why my next guest's personal story is so horrifying. Maher Arar is an engineer who was born in Syria. He immigrated to Canada uh, when he was 17 years old in the 1980s. Uh, Maher built up his family in Canada. He got married. He has two kids. Back in September of 2002, Maher Arar and his wife and their two young children were on vacation outside of the United States, outside of Canada. Maher had to return early to Canada for work. So he left his wife and his kids back on vacation, and he had to connect in New York to then move on to Canada. He had his connecting flight at, at JFK Airport. And then came the hell. Maher Arar was detained at JFK Airport. 
he was held for nearly two weeks on a suspicion that he had some connection to al-Qaeda. After that period where he was held in New York, he was put onto a small aircraft by U.S. operatives. He was flown to the Middle Eastern nation of Jordan. And then the Jordanians took custody of him. They beat him. They drove him to Syria. And they handed him over to Bashar al-Assad's secret police. Assad's secret police and intelligence officials tortured and interrogated Maher Arar and then eventually locked him in a dungeon for almost a year. The Canadian government, after Maher Arar was freed, uh, cleared him of any connection to terrorism. They apologized to him and they gave him a settlement. The U.S. government has never acknowledged that Maher Arar was innocent and that his kidnapping by U.S. operatives was totally unjustified. Maher Arar is still unable to enter the United States, and he believes that he remains on the no-fly list. So Maher Arar can't join us in New York, uh, but he does right now uh, from Ottawa, Canada. Maher, welcome to Intercepted. Thank you, Jeremy, for having me. Your reaction to the missile strikes ordered by Donald Trump and the geopolitical game that is now being played with Syria? I will never cheer the U.S. government uh, striking other countries in any way, shape, or form, because history has shown that when the U.S. government intervenes, it's never because of humanitarian reasons. But at the same time, we have to realize that a lot of people are dying in Syria, and Assad has committed horrible crimes. So I won't cheer on what the U.S. has done, because I know especially Ronald Trump has his own reasons for doing so, maybe political reasons. We all know that his ratings have been declining since he took over. So yeah, um, I'm against interventions in general, but uh, I also worry about the death toll in Syria that's been mounting for, for years now. What do you think the United States should be doing in Syria right now? I don't think the United States should have ever intervened in Syria at all or any in any other place. I think the international community should be involved as a world community as opposed to just a single country. What worries me is the United States, you know, reasons behind intervening is not really to serve the Syrian people. And the other reason I, I really am not of the opinion that the United States should be the only country taking action in Syria is because imperial past and even present. Unfortunately, no other single country, you know, with no imperial past has taken the initiative to to stand up and protect the Syrian people. That is reality on the ground. Are you saying that you don't believe that the United States should in any way seek to overthrow the government of Bashar al-Assad by force or proxy forces? I don't think the United States is serious in getting rid of Assad. I mean, uh, history proves it. Uh, if anything, uh, up until last week, uh, the United States' efforts have been directed at those who oppose Assad, whether it's ISIS or al-Qaeda or other groups. In my opinion, what happened last week, it's just a face-saving exercise, nothing more, nothing less. We've seen this um, this sort of celebration of the cruise missile strike on corporate media in the United States. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are on the same team. And I really believe that we should have and still should um, take out his airfields 
and prevent him from being able to use them to bomb innocent people and drop sarin gas on them. Uh, But on the other side, we've seen a kind of interesting response from left-wing circles in the United States and elsewhere. And in part of it seems to be that people are adopting an enemy of my enemy is my friend posture on Syria, where it's not just about opposing U.S. uh, intervention or U.S. militarism or U.S. regime change politics, uh, but actually defending Bashar al-Assad. And I'm curious, because I know you're very active on social media, what's your analysis of both the way it's been handled in the U.S. corporate media, but also in segments of the left in the United States and elsewhere? It's only news when the United States intervenes, right? We all know that the United States has been intervening militarily at least since 2014. What also strikes me is the position that has been adopted by people who consider themselves to be on the left spectrum of politics. There is a good majority that have been portraying Assad as the victim. And I really don't understand this position because... You could still oppose U.S. intervention without siding with Assad and apologizing for his crimes. Uh, What I've noticed over the last uh, year or so is that the position adopted by many pundits on the left and journalists, uh, a few of them at least, is that it really is going beyond analyzing the situation. It's going beyond uh, seeking the truth, and it's going to basically attack Assad opponents and use the same language that Assad has been using to describe his opponents. The thing is, we always have to look at how people who are suffering in Syria have the look at the situation, not how we look at it, right? I don't deny that Assad has his own support in Syria, but the stats are very, very clear on this. Assad is behind the majority of destruction and death and misery in Syria. And it is not new. Assad does not really distinguish between those who carry arms and those who oppose him politically. There is absolutely no distinction. The starting ground should be to declare that Assad is a dictator, that Assad is not really friends of the West or friends of uh, secularism, but he is really only a friend of his own his own self. Well, it's interesting that you, you bring up Assad labeling his opponents as terrorists, because when the so-called war on terror was launched uh, by Bush and Cheney with the support of uh, Democrats and Republicans alike, that was the language used by the most powerful people in the world, that you're with us or you're with the terrorists. Either you're with us, either you love freedom and with nations which embrace freedom, or you're with the enemy. There's no in-between. Uh, Maher, I, I want for people who, who don't know your backstory or why you have credibility beyond the fact that you're, uh, you were born in Syria and your roots are in Syria, what happened to you in summary after 9-11? Well, I was arrested at JFK airport, and I did not know that the Canadian police had sent some information about me to the U.S. government. I was detained. I was not given food for at least 24 hours. I was, uh, you know, not told what charges were laid against me. I was told to go to Syria willingly. And when I refused, 
uh, in the middle of the night, uh, about, uh, I think, 12 days later, I was sent, shipped off to Jordan, uh, to Syria via Jordan on a private jet. There I spent in Syria about a year. I was physically abused and tortured at the very beginning. Uh, during that time, I was detained in underground uh, cell that I, I still call until this day uh, the coffin or the grave. I thought I was going to die, frankly. And uh, in fact, I wished death many times because that awful place was a psychological torture on its own. And I was released uh, mainly because my wife lobbied on my behalf. A CIA plane shipped him first to Jordan, then he was driven to Syria. Yesterday, Canadian judge Dennis O'Connor, who had investigated Arar's case for almost two years, said that Arar had no links to terrorists. I'm able to say categorically that there is no evidence to indicate that Mr. Arar has committed any offence or that his activities constitute a threat to the security of Canada. So far, the Bush administration has tried to prevent the case from being heard on the grounds that it would harm national security. Mayor Arar couldn't attend the hearing. That's because he's on a no-fly list and can't come to the United States. And there was an inquiry in Canada eventually that... uh, basically cleared my name, blamed the, the, both the U.S. government and the Canadian government for my fate. And uh, eventually, also, I settled a lawsuit against the Canadian government. The U.S. government never, never, never acknowledged their role in, my, in what happened to me. And they dismissed my lawsuits. Was, uh, and we tried to bring my, our lawsuit to the Supreme Court, but unfortunately, the Supreme Court refused. And most of the arguments that were raised were based on state secrets arguments. One of the things that just strikes me is your incredible humility. I say that because I think a lot of people, if they were in your situation, where they were rendered by the uh, United States, uh, you believe uh, quite likely the CIA, to Syria, where you then were brutalized and held in this underground small tomb, that they would be taking the position that the Assad regime should be overthrown by any means necessary. And I'm, I'm just wondering how it is that you have come to a position that is far more nuanced than that, and that you're not just motivated by bitterness or anger at the injustice, uh, set aside the other policies of Assad in Syria, but just based on what happened to you, how is it that you are able to look at this in the way that you do versus just he should be overthrown? I've always been able to survive by trying to understand the other. Like one way I was able to cope with what happened to me is by trying to put myself in the shoes who sent me to Syria. I'm not trying to justify their action, but I'm just trying to understand why they took that decision just to come to terms of what happened to me. You know, there was 9-11, they were scared, they did not think rationally. It's always good to have empathy for the others, even if they have done evil to you. So I do agree, you know, that the US government has done injustice to me, uh, big injustice, in fact. But uh, at the same time, I can't let this blind me from seeing the good side of things, right? I can't let what happened to me and my personal experience blind me from the facts. So if the U.S., for example, has been wrong on my, like with respect to my story, they might be, you know, they might be right on other things. So I can't just paint everyone and every action with the same color. I have to, otherwise I would just not be just, right? 
That's why when I look at the U.S. actions in the Middle East, I have to distinguish between what's good and what's bad. And, I, and based on that, I make a judgment. Is there any doubt in your mind that Assad did, in fact, uh, use chemical weapons on the occasions that it's been reported most recently, um, April 4th in Idlib? No, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. Whether Assad knew about it or not, that's not for me to answer. But there is no doubt that Assad has used it two weeks ago, and he even uh, used it before. There's no doubt about that. How do you think this could be resolved or ended in the best way possible for Syrians, not for global powers, but for Syrians? Well, Jeremy, I wish I had the crystal ball. By no means, I'm saying that the United States should should intervene and, and put a stop to this. But the, if the international community, maybe through the UN, does not take serious action and say enough is enough, I think he will continue with his slaughter. And in fact, he has been playing a very, very smart game so far, smarter than anyone else, including Trump, by emphasizing that the people who is who he is fighting are all terrorists. And unfortunately, this message have so far resonated with uh, European countries. And that explains why there is reluctance to try to um, get rid of Assad. I, I would be very much happy if Assad today say, you know what, let us stop the war. And I think he, he owns that decision, by the way. And I believe he has owned it for a long time. Let us stop all this you know, war. Let us sit together. Let us find a political solution. And he has to stop uh, portraying all of his opponents as terrorists. And this is the only way to go forward. And if Assad is willing to leave power by elections, I think this would be the, the best solution. But if he continues to label all his opponents as terrorists, I, I really don't see how uh, this will end. It's unfortunate, but this is the reality. Well, and, and of course, Assad is doing that just as uh, you know other uh, despots and thugs around the world do, and just as the United States has done uh, on numerous occasions. But there really are terrorists in Syria. There is a such thing as the Islamic State. There are uh, foreign fighters who have poured in. They do control parts of Syria. And I'm wondering if you just completely reject the notion that the alternative to Assad is that these groups consolidate more power in larger swaths of territory inside of Syria. I think the the role of ISIS and uh, you know similar like-minded groups have been magnified in the West. This is because ISIS and such groups, part of their agenda is to go outside Syrian borders, right? So the West view them as a threat, as opposed to Assad, the secular. <laughs> this is the reality. I mean, if you look at the stats and who is responsible for the most of destruction in Syria, I mean, by far, Assad is the big winner. So I think the role of ISIS and al-Qaeda have been taken out of proportion and um, talk about ISIS and very little about Assad. And of course, the average uh, citizen will think uh, ISIS is the biggest threat to the world. Uh, it may be from the Western point of view, but for Syrians, ISIS and like-minded groups, they're not the biggest threat to their existence. And that's the reality. Well, Maharar, I, I always, uh, every time I talk to you or I'm, or I'm with you, I, I'm, I'm in awe of the humanity that you exhibit, given everything that's happened to you and to your family. And um, I just, I want to thank you for joining us on Intercepted. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Good luck. Maharar is a Syrian-born Canadian engineer.
He was kidnapped by U.S. intelligence at JFK Airport in September of 2002, and he was taken in an extraordinary rendition to be tortured in Bashar al-Assad's Syria. Maharar is now the CEO of Cause Square, a fundraising application for social justice causes and other campaigns. That does it for the show. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack Desidoro, and our executive producer is Tal Malad. Rick Kwan mixed the show, and we had production assistance from Elise Swain. Our music was composed by DJ Spooky. However you listen to this show, we want to ask you to make sure that you are subscribed to it. If you use iTunes or Google Play or any of those other uh, platforms, don't just subscribe. Uh, give us a rating. And what would really help is if you give our show a review. We also have really enjoyed hearing from our listeners on our Twitter feed, which is simply intercepted. Uh, You can weigh in there. You can uh, get into fights, arguments, agreements, disagreements with other people who listen to the show and our wonderful staff. And sometimes I pop in. uh, We'll also uh, try to respond to as many of you as we can. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. I know people in the administration who are dying to use military action. The problem is there aren't targets. That, well, Char- you know, Charlie, that's yeah. just, you know, people who say ahead of time in a war that they know what it's going to be like are always wrong. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.